living on earth with a divine nature, Second Peter, this is part four. And I'm looking again at this title, Is It Easy or Hard to Be a Christian? Is it easy or hard to be a Christian, applying all diligence to your faith? The text we're working with is Second Peter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7 for right now. Peter writes and says, For this very reason, and there's the phrase, make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. That's where we got to last Sunday morning. Self-control with with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness godliness with brotherly or sisterly affection and brotherly affection with love you would think that's the same thing let's pray We recognize, Lord Jesus, that unless you come by your Holy Spirit, we will understand the nouns and the verbs and the adverbs in these sentences. But unless your Holy Spirit comes, not one of us will see, not one of us will see beauty in these truths. We need you to come and open the eyes of our heart, not the eyes on our head, but the eyes of our heart that we have appetite. We have appetite for spiritual truth. This is what the psalmist was getting at when it's like sweet as honey and like fine gold because we have an appetite for sweets and we have an appetite for material things, but we don't naturally have an appetite for divine truth. You have to come. You have to come. And so open the eyes of our hearts to the glories of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think deep in our hearts, most of us know that the Christian walk isn't automatic. It is supernatural. But that's not the same as automatic. Most of us don't take the time or make the effort to sort out the process of, of uh, how our faith gets expanded and nourished. And so we should be grateful for the way Peter, Peter who certainly knew all about the highs and lows of following Jesus, he, he takes us through this very down-to-earth um, faith maintenance process. There's this reminder to make every effort to supplement our faith. And what I see in that is, is faith isn't, faith isn't self-sustaining. How do, you, how do you picture your Christian faith? Faith doesn't arrive. Faith doesn't arrive all at once. 
like Amazon comes to your door with a box, you open the door, they place the box in your hand, and now you have it. If you think of the Christian life that way, you're not understanding it correctly. So faith doesn't come as a static, one-time gift. There. Jesus says, no, it's, it's actually more like the way uh, a branch abides in a vine. At what moment does the life of the vine go into the branch? Well, there is no one moment. That's how the branch survives. There, there has to be this constant flow of grace. And that's, that's what Jesus is talking about when he says sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So every day brings fresh evil. And that's why your mercies are new every morning. You get it? Fresh evil every day. Fresh grace every day. That's the only way you have of living life. And that's the only way you have of growing in faith. And so he says, we looked at this, faith, faith must be morally virtuous and dynamic. Can't just be talk. He says it must be fed by knowledge. We looked at that. Understanding. Thought. Meditating on God's word. Faith's not possible without that. And then knowledge must be made useful through self-control. We looked at that. That's, that's because I can know something from God's Word, but if I let my desires just ride roughshod over the truth of God's Word, if I don't give God's Word time to land on my mind with impact, then the knowledge will be useless. So there's, in addition to learning what God says, there has to be a reining in of everything in my life that pulls in the opposite direction. Self-control. Or the knowledge will be useless knowledge. This is such important stuff, and today we're going to continue with Peter's explanation of how spiritual health is sustained both by the work of the Holy Spirit and our determination to make every effort daily to grow in it. So point number one. True faith must constantly brace for the long haul. This is in five and six. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Looked at that. Virtue with knowledge, we looked at that. Knowledge with self-control. And then he says, and self-control with this. Steadfastness. So, again, because faith is a process, not a static one-time event, steadfastness is required. I wonder, do you think Peter was thinking about his own life? He had made these wonderful professions, eh? Lord, everybody else in this group of losers, they may leave you. Here, though, you have something of quality. I won't. If I have to die for you. And he ends up just forsaking the Lord. So Peter knows, as he writes this, 
I don't think Peter forgot. Do you think Peter ever forgot hearing the rooster crow and having Jesus look at him? Do you think Peter ever forgot that moment? Not a chance. Not a chance. He was thinking of his own life. The difference between talk and stamina, living it out courageously, counterculturally. Words can be spoken in an instant, but boy, it's another thing. And it's easy to get tired. Paul, Paul's the one that talks about growing weary in well-doing. Happens to, happens to Christian ed teachers. It happens to pastors. It happens to board members. It happens to ushers. It happens to everybody. Just, oh. So part of the knowledge that we should be adding to our faith, part of that knowledge will be just this deep understanding that this making every effort, you're going to have to do that over a longer period of time than is convenient. In fact, it must be the case that we have a hard time learning this truth because the Bible, when you see the Bible teaching and then reteaching the same thing with different writers from different perspectives, then you know the Holy Spirit is trying to, to land on our minds with some weight. I was looking at James 5, 7 and 8. I want you to notice the time words in, in this text. So... Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can't miss it. Patient, until, wait, patient, until, patient, establish, wait. The coming of the Lord, says James in that eighth verse, is is at hand. It's it's coming, but it's not here yet. So by definition, the Christian life, at least a lot of it, is lived waiting for something that isn't here yet. Steadfastness required to do this well because everything else in the world, think about this for a minute. Everything else in the world, especially in the day in which we live, is designed to speed up results in everything. Email. is too slow now. You, you, you text. It's quicker. Fast foods. Delivered groceries to your door. Online banking. You take your check. All you got to do is take a picture of it. You can rip it up. It's in your account. You don't have to go outside. Online shopping. You don't wait for the networks to put your show on. You stream it. You stream it whenever you want it. You get it right away. 
So this whole world in which we live is designed to get you everything quicker than you ever had it before. I was, I was just thinking as I, you know, you get in the shower, you hit the tap, and the hot water comes out, and you think, life is good. And there was a time when if you wanted, if you w there was no shower, but if you wanted a bath, you'd, you'd get out a, a, a metal tub of some kind, I imagine. Then you'd build a fire, right? And you'd get water, bucket by bucket by bucket. You'd heat it up over a fire, right? You'd take it from there, you'd pour it into the metal tub. How long will that take? So it's certainly great having everything quick and fast, but there is a huge problem with it. There's a huge problem. The problem is this. A good marriage still takes patience. And where will we learn that patience in a culture like ours? We are, we are detraining people in patience. I caught myself doing this. We had something with the uh, internet connection here at the church, and so you, you, you want to go online and check your email, and, and the, you see that thing spinning around. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you a half a minute went by. And I found myself thinking, how do people live like this? <laughs> See, a prayer life still requires patience. Communion with the Holy Spirit still requires patience. Meditating on God's Word Stopping and looking at what the words say, thinking about how it applies to your life. And why am I not understanding that? And what help do I need? What commentary can I get to help me understand what that verse says? And how am I going to apply it to my life? There's no quick way to do that. Meditating on God's word still takes patience. Stillness. But where is this training for patience to be found in this world? All the false gods respond immediately. And what that means is we, we need to, now you get it, Peter, make every effort to lean into steadfastness. Three times in two verses, the Apostle James repeats the same two words, be patient. And then he, and he finally says that it is patience that, that establishes our hearts. So, this is really crucial. He's talking about how our faith, how the roots of our faith get more deeply established over time. He's talking about how the roots of our faith are nurtured to get more and more nourishment out of the same relationship with Jesus over the passing of years. This is precious. This is precious. Steadfastness is to your soul what a hard workout in the gym is for your heart. Steadfast in, steadfastness increases soul health. 
So James is saying you can, you can no more be a good Christian without patience than you can be a good farmer. That's why he uses that illustration of fruit growing. Farming doesn't work. If you think you're going to go out there and sow, and the next morning you're going to go out there and harvest, you're not going to make much money as a farmer. You can't be a farmer that way. And you can't be a Christian without steadfastness. He is saying, James, Christian strength and growth come as a rule, as a rule, at about the same pace as crops grow. That's how it works. Get your brain around that. Okay, point number two. Make God himself the center of your desires, not merely self-improvement. It's in uh, verse 6. And knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness. Why does he put this in there with godliness? I mean, I thought the whole thing was just kind of godliness. The emphasis on godliness is really important here. It's there for... uh, a timely reminder to someone like me, someone like you, that virtuous traits of character only have spiritual value as they are related to God himself. I think that's an important sentence. Virtual traits of character only have spiritual value as they are related to God himself. So, so Peter is saying effort is important. Make every effort, but don't fall into the trap of just thinking about how you're going to improve yourself. Y- your effort isn't primarily directed toward the self at all. Your pursuit in all of these areas is the glory and honor of, of God. There is nothing distinctly Christian about Pursuing the betterment of self. I think, I think just about everyone does that, sometimes in weird ways. The Bible says that our righteousness, that's not the bad things you do. It's the best things you do. Our righteousness is, is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. So, so in our diligence, we aren't just pursuing self-discipline We're pursuing closeness to Jesus. Those are two very different things. We focus, James says we focus on the promise of his coming. We think about his judgment. We think about his rewards. We think about the great gift of redemption. So so do you see what Peter's doing with his emphasis on adding godliness to our faith? He's reminding all of us that we're not just creating a system of moral improvement. We're certainly going to have a certain lifestyle as believers. But the fuss isn't just about developing a lifestyle. We're not even trying to be just good people. God is in our hearts. We've been redeemed from the old futile ways of life by the precious blood of Jesus. That's what's in our hearts as we pursue these things. I was looking at it in 1 Peter 1. 17 to 19.
And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds. Okay, now he's going to talk about our conduct, right? Conduct yourselves. This is how we live. With fear throughout the time of your exile. So while I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my conduct, I'm thinking about my lifestyle, but I'm not just thinking, am I becoming a better person? I'm thinking, am I, becoming, am I, am I giving more glory to God? Am I becoming more Christ-like? So here's, here's the commandment. Conduct yourselves. But here's what your brain is doing. Knowing. So here's your conduct, actions. Here's your head, your thoughts. Knowing that you were... Now, notice how how, uh, redemptive this all is. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So my conduct matters. But what's fueling my conduct is I understand, I understand something of Christ's death on the cross. I understand his investment, his shed blood. I understand that, that my whole life now is designed to bring glory to him. I'm designed not just to make Don Horbin look great, but my life is to make Jesus Christ look great in all of his redemptive power and glory. And there's all the world of difference between those two things. Conduct yourselves in your time of exile. Why? To be better persons? To have a better self-image? Well, no. I mean, that may be the outcome, but only incidentally. The process is rooted in a mind focused on the death of Christ. Redemption is the fuel for transformation. That's what Peter means with those words. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This is miles different from every talk show with every, every person telling you how to have a better life and how to, how to have uh, better conduct and how to be more purposeful in your living. They don't talk about Jesus. That's all Peter talks about. I care about your conduct. Here's why. You've been redeemed by precious blood of the Lamb. Let me say it as bluntly as I can. There is no other acceptable motive for my acts of righteousness. Not with God. All other motives for good conduct are offensive to God. They are rooted in pride and self. That's why you find Paul constantly referring to the Christian's righteousness as, as the fruit of a commitment to Jesus. I, I was looking at this verse in Philippians. Here's the same idea. And it is my prayer 
that your love may abound. So here's the conduct. Your love may abound more and more. So what the world needs now is love, sweet love. This is how I want you to live, Paul says. Loving people. With knowledge and all discernment. So that, so here's the motive. You may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Look at Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see the difference? To the glory and praise of God. Filled with the, filled with the fruit of righteousness. This, this righteousness is the righteousness that grows out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Like the branch and the vine. So God's plan through righteousness in my life is to make much of Christ. Anything that just makes much of Don Horbin robs Christ of his glory and is offensive to God. In addition, Peter says we look forward to the judgment of Christ at the end of the age. It's in that seventh, 17th verse. And if you call him as Father, isn't it interesting the way he, when he thinks of God as Father, I would have thought the first thing he'd say is the Father who loves, wouldn't you? I mean, that's what you think of. And if you call on him as Father who judges, impartially, according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So the idea is we're not here for long, and there's a judge. So there's another motive that he introduces into this. The heart's motive for righteous acts is rooted in God himself. He's father. He is judge. We're through a time of exile very quickly. And so Peter roots this call to adding all diligence to our faith, he roots it in this call for redemption and judgment. It's all anchored in Jesus Christ. Point number three. True faith in God must spill over in loving actions to fellow Christians and mankind in general. I see that in the seventh verse. Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness. And then he says godliness with these two things, brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Again, I, I think there's a linking together of truths here. It's more than just a list of separate, unrelated virtues. Each one of them affects the others. So it's, it's just interesting to me. Before Peter talks about love or kindness in general, he talks about godliness. Godliness comes first. We're probably getting less comfortable with that truth because of the bombardment of the spirit of the age. But, 
But the clear teaching of the scriptures is that mere benevolence, mere humanitarianism, mere philanthropy, mere commitment to the needs of others is of no eternal value when it's detached from a desire to glorify God in those actions. That's what Peter means when he shows that kindness must flow out of godliness. He doesn't mean that brotherly kindness creates godliness. He's already explained that in the last part of verse 1, where he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this righteousness is is generated. It's created by God himself through Jesus Christ. I can't create it. You can't create it. Now Peter is teaching that this faith must be, it's got to be manifested. It has to be fleshed out in actions to brothers and sisters in the faith and neighbors in general. Those actions don't create saving faith. That's important. They demonstrate it. They manifest it. If, if, I try, if I try with just through acts of love and kindness to others, if I think I'm going to climb the stairway to heaven by those deeds, I'll, it, it won't work. No one is going to heaven because they were loving toward people. No one. But when it's a manifestation of all that I have received in Jesus Christ redemptively, flowing in, flowing through, my motive is that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Then you have, then you have righteousness of Christ flowing out of your life, reaching into the hearts of others. This is what Paul meant, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain, I gain nothing. So benevolence has to flow out of love for God. It's the result of the relationship with God through Christ. It is not the source of the relationship with God through Christ. So what I'm saying here is even good deeds... If not done as a response to God's saving grace, if they're done as a means of establishing acceptance with God, then my good deeds are offensive to God. My acts of kindness are offensive to God. My acts of charity will be offensive to God because they're rooted in human pride. So Peter says we must apply all diligence to show Brotherly affection. You know why I think he starts with that? I think he starts with that because it's, it's usually easier to be nice to someone you don't know very well than someone who's a brother and sister in Christ. Because you know what happens as you get closer and closer to people? you realize that they're almost as bad as you are. I 
I think he starts with brothers and sisters because we tend to place higher standards on fellow believers than we do on people outside the body of Christ. It's very easy. It's very easy to just... There are people who just set themselves up as the, the moral police in the body of Christ. Their duty is, I get the emails. Everything that everybody's doing wrong. And so... When Peter talks about the character of Jesus flowing out from the inside out, he starts with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Then Peter says we must make every effort to show love to all people. Godliness with brotherly affection, verse 7, brotherly affection with, with love. We practice our love here where we develop it. It's where we exercise it. And then we move out in love to a needing, a needy and hurting world. I think Paul had this in mind. This is the last reference. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord, see this is, it's all rooted in Jesus. May the Lord make your love increase and abound in love for one another. That's the church. And who else? Well, for all. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our Lord and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Let's pray.